Hello, everybody, and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science podcast. I'm Moni Boom, research fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And today, change of scenery, we're going fishing. Now, we hear a lot about how fisheries are affecting species worldwide, mainly through things like overfishing and bycatch. But can fisheries actually also drive change for good, particularly if they are small scale and sustainable? How important are these small-scale fisheries to achieving internationally agreed targets on sustainable development, for example? And is it fair to tarnish all fisheries with the same brush, assuming they would be bad for species conservation? So let's get stuck into the subject, hook, line and sinker, and chat to some of the experts on how small-scale fisheries could help us address a lot of bad stuff out there in the world, from the biodiversity crisis to helping to end hunger and poverty. Now it's going to be intense, so I need help to reel in the facts about small-scale fisheries. So, meet Rebecca. Rebecca Short is a postdoctoral research fellow at Exeter University, and she likes to introduce herself as somebody who is not into anything cute and cuddly. Explain yourself, Rebecca. Yeah, I guess uh, I decided to be a marine biologist at like 10 years old, you know, obviously based on a lot of rational thinking. And ever since then, I've just had dolphin stuff thrown at me every gift for every birthday and Christmas and I think I just rallied against that to be honest and started getting more into things like eels um I've never really been into the dolphins which are definitely acute and cuddly even though they're not furry so how many stuffed eels have you since gotten toys stuffed eel toys not a single one I think they should be a big seller to be honest but you struggle to find one I once paper mache some eels for somebody so um I can do your paper mache eel (laughs) I'd love one (laughs) So why small-scale fisheries? I mean, they're obviously also not cute and cuddly, so I can see that. But what inspired you to try and really shine the spotlight on them as a potential force for good? I think I've always sort of slowly gravitated towards fisheries, just because it's it's a very useful area of research at the moment and, and really quite underappreciated. I started off being a massive shark enthusiast, doing some research into the shark fisheries and realised that actually fisheries are all about people and small-scale fisheries are much more important than we give them credit for. And so it's, I find quite an exciting area of research for that reason, but also makes you feel a bit more useful. So what's the useful aspect of it? Well, they feed people. And they feed people quite well, and yet, you know, woefully understudied in many ways. So I suppose when it comes to, I don't know, feeding people and looking at proper nutrition for people, quite often what we hear about is this thing called the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Can you tell us what they are? So it's 17 goals um, and adopted by currently all the United Nations member states. So they came into force in 2015. And basically they're just, I think they call it a blueprint for the way forward, appreciating that we as a species cannot continue as we are and have everyone living like an American. They are a blueprint for sustainably developing the world into the future. So how do um, small-scale fisheries feed into, pardon the pun, the sustainable development goals? Well, in my opinion, sadly, they don't. There is a, a sustainable development goal focused purely on zero hunger. Fisheries in general are not mentioned very much within that, and small-scale fisheries are not mentioned at all. There's another goal focused on the oceans, life below water. 
small scale fisheries do get a slight mention in that in terms of increasing the access for people in small scale fisheries. But really, there's no huge mention of how important they are. There's, for example, a sustainable development goal for good health and well-being. And it's becoming increasingly appreciated that fish are an amazing resource for protein and also other micronutrients. And yet it's not really acknowledged in that goal either. So in terms of the sustainable development goals, there are probably five or six that small-scale fisheries are really important contributors towards, and yet they aren't included at all. So our first guest can really help us deep dive into the subject of what small-scale fisheries are, and also how they could help with achieving a set of global targets called the Sustainable Development Goals. Jeppe Kolding is Professor of Fishery Science at the University of Bergen in Norway, and he specializes in small-scale fisheries and their role in developing countries, especially when it comes to things like food security. How would you define a small-scale fishery, just for our listeners at home who are probably quite familiar with, I don't know, pictures of large, heavy trawlers scooping out fish from the sea? What do small-scale fisheries generally look like? There is no really clear definition because it is very sort of depending on which country we live in. I mean, a small scale fishery in Norway, where I come from, would be a commercial, highly industrialized fishery in Africa, for example. But I mean, the general definition is that it is it is many people. The big trawlers you're talking about generally, I mean, there's very few people. It's big ships. But here we have many actors, many small boats, all depending on local resources. Most of them, they're only out for a day maximum two days. They are very depending on the resources close to where they live or they have to migrate. These big factory trawlers, they can be at sea for months at a time. The catches are much, much bigger per unit of the boats. And also the the investment, I mean, a small-scale fishery is normally small investments. I mean, it can be anything from a man in a, in a dugout canoe with a little net or a plank boat, few nets or some pots, something like that. So it is It is labor intensive, as the name say, it is small in the scale, but many, many people are engaged in it. We reckon that at least 90% of the world's fishermen are small scale fisheries. Wow, that's a huge, that's a huge percentage. It's huge and, and it's forgotten. Fisheries is very much determined by Western societies. I mean, we say that there's inverse correlation between fishery scientists and small scale fisheries. I mean, all the fishery scientists in the world, nearly all of them are from or working in the Western or North America. There's very few people working on small scale fisheries. Also, the fish stocks are so small that it doesn't really pay to have expensive surveys going on or monitoring and things like that. So they're sort of falling through all the cracks in a way, but they have a huge importance locally, but uh, they're not really recognized. So we have these two things. We have the hidden hunger and we have the hidden harvest. And these are both things that, that small scale fisheries play a very important role. So the hidden hunger is really the kind of concept that relates to the fact that malnutrition now is actually the biggest issue in terms of food security at the moment in the world, right? Apart from countries that have a political conflict or are in war or something like that, then hunger is not really the problem. I mean, if, if there's peace and stability in the country, then normally people have enough food. But the problem is the quality of the food now. I mean, the junk food, the sugar, the carbohydrates is coming up and people are not eating varied enough. So what they get is micronutrient deficiencies. There's a recent report coming out from Africa that says that more than half of the African children, they're dying from malnutrition. It's not from hunger, but it's from malnutrition. Anemia, lack of vitamin A, zinc, iodine. If you have a very sort of starch-based diet or very uh, monotonous diet, you're not hungry, but you are 
you are actually getting malnourished. And this is something I suppose that's also one of the targets of the sustainable development goals to address hidden hunger as well as obviously ending poverty, ending hunger. Yes, it is part of it. I mean, it's SDG3, good health to everybody. But if you read the SDG3, then fish is not mentioned. Fish is hardly mentioned in SDG2, uh, the hunger one. Where small-scale fisheries are mentioned, that is in SDG14, life underwater. Mm -hmm. But there it is mainly about making them economically more efficient. It is not about hidden hunger or micronutrients. It is mainly about efficiency. And this is another thing that is sort of characteristic with the SDGs is that they have been to large degree, in my opinion, being formulated, but how we look at the world in our part of the world, in the in the in the global north, it seems that our model, where we are actually making the fisheries more and more efficient, more bigger and bigger unit, that is the development one wants to see for the small scale fisheries. But what can you call the side effect of that is that uh, many of them are going to lose their jobs. I mean, we have sort of two approaches, one called the wealth-based approach, which is spearheaded by the World Bank and economists. All they think about is growth and efficiency, and that means taking people out of it. I mean, each unit has to be more and more efficient. But the other one, the alternative is what we call the welfare approach, is that all these small people, even if they don't catch much, even if they're not really efficient, they have a livelihood. So, I mean, the SDGs, they reflect how we have developed our part of the world. And that is just based on growth, growth, growth. But I don't think it's a model that is uh, useful or even uh, desirable in, in a small scale fishery in, a, in the global south. Yeah, I suppose also in a place where many, many more people actually depend on this for their income. Not only for the income, for example, in Africa, a lot of farmers, they fish for two, three months a year. I mean, they call themselves farmers, but in fact, they are fishermen part of the year. I mean, small-scale fishermen have a, a diversified livelihood. It's very sort of seasonal based. During the rainy season or when they can't till the land, then they go fishing. But they wouldn't call themselves a fisherman. The same we did in Europe, also in Norway in, in the old days, people were sort of uh, fisher farmers. They would both fish and farm. Now, if you are a fisherman, you are, you are 100% professional and only do that. So in terms of the fish that small-scale fisheries might target, are all of the fish equally as good at helping, say, with malnutrition? Or is there like a kind of fish that's really good for this purpose, like really sustainable, really good in nutrients? This is uh, something that is coming up now more and more is that a lot of these really important micronutrients, they are actually in the head of the fish or in the guts. So what we are aiming for now is small fish that is eaten whole. If you have a large fish, then uh, normally it is filleted. We mm. cut off the mussel and only eat the mussel and throw the rest away. A large fish, if you catch it there, you have to either put it on ice or you have to smoke it. You have to use a lot of energy to preserve it. But the small fish, at least in Africa or many parts of the world, they're so small that it, it's not possible to fillet them. You put them on slabs or in mesh wire, things like that. And in two, three days, it is sun-dried. I mean, you, I mean, you don't use any energy for preserving it. And the beautiful part or the best part of it is that people eat the whole fish with head and everything. Oh, excellent. So for like maximum that. nutrients. Yes. Vitamin A is called retinol. And it comes from uh, the same name as you have in your eyes, the retina. But nearly all the vitamin A in the fish is in the eyes. So if you eat the whole head of the fish, you get a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids and you get vitamin A. If you eat the whole fish, you get a lot of calcium from the bones. Uh, and in, in the gut there, or in the liver, and there is a lot of other good things, iron and, and zinc and zinc like that. The smaller the fish is, the more you are likely to eat it whole. 
and the more micronutrients you get. So you don't use much energy for cooking it. If you're poor, you can buy them in small quantities. And the added value is also that you are now fishing lower in the tropic pyramid. Because if you have a large fish, then, I mean, the general rule is that every kilo of large fish has cost five kilos of small to get. Nearly all fish are carnivorous. So um, a large fish will have to eat a lot of small fish to grow. So if you catch the small fish, you get much more food out of the system. So it's a win-win-win-win, and uh, very few people realize it. Yeah, it's really quite surprising, because I suppose at the moment there's a lot of talk about this, and I like to use this now a lot, transformative change, following on from the, the big report that recently came out that talked about the biodiversity crisis and what's actually needed to reverse some of these impacts as well. There was lots of talk about how we have to actually fundamentally change how we think about things, not just in economic terms, maybe constant growth isn't possible, but also kind of how we interact with nature. And I suppose looking at some of the places where people have been doing this for absolute years, but we've probably not been very good at listening to it, is probably the way forward. Yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have sort of two international conventions. We have the uh, United Nations uh, Convention Law of the Sea that tells us that we should try to get as much food out of the ocean as possible, what we call the Maximum Sustainable Yield or MSY. But we also have the Convention of Biological Diversity, the CBD Convention, that tells us that when we harvest the sea or the ocean, we should try to make as little impact as possible into the environment or, or the structure and the function of the ecosystem. And that means that if we are only selectively taking out the biggest fish of the ocean or only those that are targeted, then we will change the ecosystem. And it's like in a garden, if you only take your carrots and leave everything else, then your garden will change. But if you take a little bit of everything in the garden, then the garden keeps the same structure as always. And we call that balanced harvest. And I mean, that we try to harvest through the whole ecosystem and not just uh, a few selected uh, items. The trick is that for every large fish you catch, you can catch five kilos of small ones at the same time and keep the balance. Final question. If you could change just one thing about how we perceive these small-scale fisheries, or in fact don't perceive them at all because we seemingly seem to forget about them a lot and the role they could play, what would it be that you would want to change? The most important thing is that we are managing the fish like it was mammals. We have this idea that we should not catch the juveniles. They should all grow up and become fish, big fish before we, we catch them. And that is why we have mess size limitations or minimum size limitations and things like that. But all these ideas, they come from mathematical models where we don't pay for the food. I mean, the model doesn't take into consideration that every kilo of big fish has cost five kilos small because they all just grow from, from a mathematics. If I could change one single thing, I would say, do like the Africans, you catch both the small and the big, not just the big. But all these regulations, they come from Western theories on, on fisheries, which is, I call them free lunch models, because we don't pay for the food. And that is a big mistake. And of course, if a farmer doesn't have to pay for the food, then he can let his animal grow as much as possible. Imagine you had a cow. And this cow had 10,000 or 100,000 small babies. And all these babies were feeding on each other. And the mother was feeding on the babies. And they were feeding in order to grow. I mean, there was no way you would let them all grow up. It would be impossible. You couldn't feed it. You would get ruined. So I usually say to my students, you have this strange animal that is breeding like a plant. It has lots and lots of offspring. But it feeds like a lion. It's a carnivore. And we don't have them on land. They don't exist, these kind of animals on land. So we can't imagine them. And that's, that is the big mistake we do. In the plant world, we have no problems eating juveniles. I mean, we eat, we eat apples and pears and bananas and mangoes and it's all babies. But all the fish, they have 
millions and millions of offspring and they have to eat other fish in order to grow. I've got to ask you that, Rebecca, because I'm kind of intrigued by it. You, you did your PhD fieldwork in Mozambique, right? I assume you were working with something related to small-scale fisheries there. I was. I was working um, alongside one of the ZSL projects, just looking at co-management of a small-scale fishery in northern Mozambique. So quite a big chunk of coastline that they're working along with different communities. Um, and co-management is sort of a newish way of decentralizing management and, and handing it back to the fishers themselves in the fishing community. And ZSL is what you would call a facilitator of that. So obviously they're not left to manage their fisheries without any advice and input from scientists and fisheries managers. And so I was working with this project on a very new and understudied issue, which is the increasing use of mosquito nets actually as fishing gear. So when people are given these nets for free in anti-malarial efforts, it's quite logical that they would um, go and fish with them. And this has been seen as quite a big problem, but never been looked into. That's so interesting. Mosquito nets as fishing gear. I never thought about that. Yeah, an increasing problem. Yeah, we're seeing it a lot, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, but also parts of Asia and South America. Looking back at small-scale fisheries with or without mosquito nets at this moment in time, <laughs> the ones that you experienced in Mozambique, how were they generally set up? How do they function? Who's involved in these small-scale fisheries? Traditionally, it's men. Um, these are actually quite conservative communities. The men do most of the primary fishing. So that's going out on the boats and actually casting a net. The women are important for cleaning, which is where you go in shallow waters and just pick from reefs and, and seagrass beds and that sort of thing. And that's really important for feeding people. The really interesting thing about the mosquito nets is that it's looked at on its head slightly and provided this primary fishing opportunity for women, um, which is one of the really important aspects that I was looking at. Because before that, they, they kind of they were doing small scale agriculture or they were dependent on their husbands. And this fishing has given them a really great opportunity to have their own income, have their own food source and get out of the slightly lonelier and less social occupation of being alone in a plot of land. That was one really important aspect of it. The co-management project was really trying to change the sort of open source or open access structure of that fishery to get people to think about maybe doing closed areas, maybe doing closed seasons with different species um, and really think about having a management plan in place. Whereas before it was just, you know, these fisheries operate as a bit of a free-for-all. Our next guest is Pip Cohen, an interdisciplinary fisheries and social scientist who really likes living on islands. She heads up the global small-scale fisheries research program of World Fish. So Pip, thank you very much for talking to us. It's great to have you on this podcast. So I looked at your biography. It's very small-scale fisheries heavy. What attracted you to them? I started working on fisheries immediately out of university. We were working on lobster fisheries and abalone fisheries in Tasmania, where I'm from. I took an opportunity to go and work as a volunteer in Tonga. And most of Tonga's fisheries are small scale, where people are fishing for food and for income. And I guess my idea about what fisheries were really changed then and the importance that fisheries have for culture, for food and as part of a way of life. And so since then, I've really focused on small-scale fisheries as a kind of integral part of people's lives. And most of my on-the-ground work has been in the Pacific, in the Pacific Islands, in Tonga, in Solomon Islands, in Fiji, and then a little bit just on the edge of the Pacific or out of it in Timor-Leste. 
Oh my God, you've been to all the good places. <laughs> I have been to all the good places and it sounds like I just enjoy tropical islands, but it's actually a lot more than that, that I love about small scale fisheries. And I think it is perhaps the mix of culture aligning with subsistence and agricultural production, rural ways of life and people's relatively limited opportunities and small-scale fisheries role in development so for maintaining human well-being and nutrition but also as an opportunity to improve human well-being nutrition and economies of particularly small island developing states but also countries across Africa and Asia as well. So I already talked a little bit with Becca and Jeppe around what the Sustainable Development Goals are, the SDGs. I hear there's also one that's SDG 5, that's about gender equality. And I think that's something that you're quite involved in, right? I have become increasingly involved in it. I'm not a gender specialist myself, but I have the honour of working with people who have studied gender and work with gender. And so increasingly over the last probably seven years, gender and small-scale fisheries have been a place where I've put some attention. So people often, when they think about fisheries, so including small-scale fisheries, they think about men fishing in boats. And so some great work by a colleague Danica Kleiber really has pushed the idea and encouraged people to think much more broadly about who fisheries involve. And that also includes people who use different methods, so women, men, children who collect and harvest in nearshore areas, and also that fisheries not just involve the harvesting, but also involve the preparation for fishing and the processing and harvesting and preparation of food that happens after fishing. Well, my horizon was just broadened when you mentioned all of the activities involved in fisheries, because obviously when I picture fisheries, I see somebody on a boat actively fishing. But of course, yes, there's preparation for it. There's, I don't know, putting the fishing gear together. There's dealing with everything that comes back. There's many more processes involved in that whole endeavor. Yes. So it taps onto something that feminist researchers and gender researchers have worked on and spoken about for a long time, and that is hidden labour and the undervalued or completely unvalued roles that women play in all sorts of activities, household activities, community activities. And so it is just one sector where we are just about catching up with the rest of the world and making these roles visible. But it's not to say also that women are actively involved in fishing as you classically imagine it. Um, so how do we get gender equality? What's the kind of research that you do when you research gender equality issues around small scale fisheries? I'm a biodiversity scientist, so I'm literally yeah. like, oh, we go out and measure stuff. But I'm always a little bit like, how would you do that? It's like a massive enigma to me. So I think the starting point is to make sure that when people are collecting any data about habitat use, so, you know, in framings of ecosystem services, how people are using different coastal habitats or inland habitats, so lakes, rivers, mangrove areas, reef areas and deep sea areas, who's using it, how do they value it, what are they using it for and what benefits are they deriving from it. So that's important. In short, we must make sure that we collect sex disaggregated data and that our sampling strategies aren't just focused on the main area that we see people coming ashore with fisheries products. So it's really just being much more sensitive and aware and thinking and continually asking, what aren't I seeing? That's really the first step and, the, and the, probably one of the most straightforward steps. The next is then around management decisions about fisheries. Firstly, you need to be aware and, and women's and men's roles in fisheries need to be visible. 
for you to recognise that women and men need to be involved in, in management decisions about their resources. And this is captured under the idea of co-management and community-based management, that people involved in the sector should be involved in the decisions that affect their sector. Making sure that forums where decisions are being made are inclusive spaces. And this is an active process, not a passive process. So if you're facilitating anything like that, really needing to be smart and aware about who's in the room, who's got a voice, who's able to speak. And then there's maybe the deeper area where gender studies and feminist researchers really focus. And that's a lot of the invisible about gender equality and gender inequality and things that you can't see and can't count. And they're the deeper norms, beliefs about how people perceive what a woman should do or what a man should do. And these are the invisible social structures. So gender research really does try to uncover some of those patterns, beliefs and norms that perpetuate inequality. And even in some cases can be challenged to um, reduce barriers to equality. So that's really the forefront of gender research for development and gender research in fisheries and small-scale fisheries. That sounds super fascinating and also so incredibly complex that, you know, my mind just blew again. Yeah, well, it is complex. It's also simple and you see it rolling out in workplaces and um, you see it rolling out in science. And so it's trying to dig a little into why things are happening the way they are, why certain people are presented with opportunities and other people aren't. And it's obviously, it's what we call intersectional. So it's not just about being a man or a woman, but it can be related to class, ethnicity, economic standing, etc. So good gender research also looks at those other things that mean certain people have more privileges and more powerful and those privileges and power are perpetuated. So how could we then, or what would we need to do for small-scale fisheries to start getting the gender equality right, i.e. working towards Sustainable Development Goal 5, I suppose? What could be the yeah. role of small-scale fisheries? So firstly is making sure that we're collecting good sex disaggregated data. The second is making sure that management and governance of small-scale fisheries is inclusive. And then the third is digging deeper and looking at gender norms, beliefs and values that might be perpetuating inequality. And this last one, as I said, is probably the frontier of gender research and, and fisheries. And I'll be presenting an example from Africa, from Zambia, where there was a combination of strategies used. So the strategy technically designed to reduce waste and loss, which is a huge problem in Zambia. I think Zambia is estimated to have 40% waste and loss in their fisheries value chains. Alongside that, there was a social innovation, so using drama skits. And the skits were really about challenging ideas about what women should do and what men should do and whether they could play a different role in the way that they were drying, handling fish. And participatory action research, so where people were involved in testing the own, their own technologies. And mm -hmm. so this pairing of a technical and social intervention led to not only reduction in waste and loss, but also a change in the way that women and men engaged in the value chain. So more women could own and make decisions about equipment that they could use to reduce waste and loss. And it also increased men's view that women should be involved in decisions. So this is what we call a gender transformative approach. 
it sounds like a really challenging term, but it's a really gentle reflection that means people's ideas about norms and beliefs change and transform. Actually, a complete aside, we just recently did a, a podcast again on social science and I just find it absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I am a um, reformed fisheries scientist, so I crawled out of the water onto the land to talk to people, really, because although I find, you know, ecology and, and you know, the fluctuation in fisheries resources fascinating it's it's also the rich cultures and the decisions and how decisions are made and and the values that fisheries have for societies that kind of led me into social science and i think if ecologists or fisheries managers or anyone who's working with people knows that they need to work with gender that's an excellent first step so a couple of things is and and again i've had the privilege of working with some excellent gender experts if you're working on gender and fisheries, gender and ecology, gender and resource management, is to really take it seriously and, and to work with people who are expert in the area and to also invest your time in, in understanding what, what all of this means. So if you could change, apart from this, if you could change one thing about how small-scale fisheries are perceived, yeah. probably yeah. let's say in Western society, because we've already talked with Jeppe about it, that in other societies, small-scale fisheries are, are totally the norm. So w what would it be? What would you like to change? One thought, you know, when I talk to people in developed countries about my work, um, and I say I work in Solomon Islands, I've many times received the response, ah, they dynamite their fishery there, don't they? So this idea that fishers or people living in developing countries are bad for the environment in a way is quite shocking given that it's actually us in developed countries that have a huge impact on our environment. It's just that we're quite disconnected from it so we don't directly see it as much as perhaps vision of somebody throwing dynamite onto a reef mine. So I guess I'd like us to think much more broadly about our own impact on the planet rather than thinking it's, it's small-scale producers that are having a large impact. So, Becca, you were previously at ZSL, but you're now at Exeter University, and I hear you're in the Department of Health. That's a bit of a turnaround, is it? Or how is that still linked to small-scale fisheries? Yeah, so down here at Exeter, we've actually got within the medical school a department called the European Centre for Environment and Human Health. Um, and there's a lot of really exciting and new research coming out here that looks at um, human health benefits and negatives from the environment and how the environment could be managed better for human health and some of the other lesser known relationships between the environment and human health. So, yes, I've moved on to a broader look at oceans and human health um, within an EU context, but with a view to going further afield and looking at a developing world context. So really trying to set an agenda for what is a really understudied set of relationships between the oceans and, and our health. And still not cute and cuddly. So Still not cute good. and cuddly, no. Nope. <laughs> So I suppose looking at health, for example, and how the oceans play a really important part, and we already kind of touched on this, I suppose one of the big reasons why, for example, we here in Europe love fish so much is because we're being told that it's nutritionally super valuable, right? And um, how much of a difference can fish make in, say, places like Mozambique? Uh, yeah, so an absolutely huge difference. 
there's lots of reasons for that. Dependence on fisheries has always been quite high in these regions, but it seemed to be growing in response to some of the impacts of climate change. Mozambique is a, is a terrible example of negative impact. Their agricultural productivity has really suffered, particularly in the north with changing rains and some of the storms we've seen recently, which have been really unusual. So there's a higher dependence on fisheries. There's also a real trade-off. Um, you have to appreciate that fisheries are part of a livelihood uh, portfolio. So a fishing net can provide a daily meal, whereas there are these time lags associated with agriculture between planting a crop and harvesting it. And, and fisheries are really important in filling those voids. And also for a balance, you know, so agriculture, especially the way it is now, where the crop selection is so depleted because of the types of things that can't grow anymore. All the micronutrients from fish are incredibly important, and they're really important in childhood nutrition. And interestingly, when you look at the example of mosquito net fishing, is that they're also really important in recovering from disease. So whilst a lot of people get malaria, much fewer people die from the disease. Um, and that's because a healthy adult is able to recover. But if you're a healthy, malnourished adult, especially if you're a malnourished child, then you're much less likely to recover from malaria. There's a really interesting trade-off here between the provision of a net that can catch fish and the provision of a net which gives you nighttime protection from malaria. Our next guest is Christina Hicks. She's a professor within the Political Ecology Group at Lancaster University and is an environmental social scientist interested in the relationships that individuals and societies form with nature. So, Christina, what is your take on small-scale fisheries? Why are they so important to you specifically? Well, I've, I've worked in small-scale fisheries for a long time, starting out working in Kenya, where um, my mother's from, and um, I was a research assistant down there. And I guess I've always had this really deep belief that small-scale fisheries can and should be able to sustain the coastal communities that they supply. And so a lot of my early work was really looking at, you know, the yield and how effective various management approaches were and why and how social organisations, as in social communities, did develop or accept various management approaches and why they didn't. And I think more recently, I've began thinking about the nutritional benefits that come from fisheries. This area has been really appealing to me because often when we think of fisheries, we think of the amount of fish people are pulling out of the ocean and the potential for that fish to deliver economic benefits. So effectively, we're fishing as much as we can, because when we think of money, we just want to grow as much as we can. But if we think of nutrients, then it kind of changes the conversation a little bit because then we can start thinking about how much fish is enough to healthily feed a coastal population rather than it needing to secure larger and larger economic benefits. So is one fish as good as the other in terms of, of nutrients? Because we generally kind of get this message, oh, it's really rich in omega-3 fatty acids, or it's really good for this, it's really good for that. But are there any differences between different fish? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We often are told that fish is healthy for us, and we're often told that it's healthy for us in terms of omega-3. And that's because omega-3 is one of the more important nutrients in the Western world where we have um, problems like coronary heart disease. But we consume, the, the FAO, for example, reports over 2,000 different species of fish in their landing status. So one of the early questions that we wanted to ask was, is a fish a fish? And so I guess the quick answer is no. If you think of protein, fish are very similar in terms of concentration of protein that you'll get from one species of fish to another. 
But if you think of the other nutrients like zinc or iron or vitamin A or, as you said, omega-3, then that will vary. So when we think about addressing some of the sustainable development goals, particularly those to do with nutrition, what are the kind of things that we might want to look for? What are the kind of deficiencies that we see out there? So I guess, I mean, hunger still is a problem in many, many regions, but micronutrient deficiencies, so the not having enough of certain nutrients that our bodies only need in very small quantities, is a lot harder to address because it's often called hidden hunger because you may be full. You may have enough to eat so that your, your stomach's full, but you may still not be getting the right nutrients, um, particularly these key micronutrients. So iron, zinc, vitamin A um, and calcium are the nutrients for which deficiencies are most prevalent around the world. So I guess fish could have a very important role in tackling nutritional deficiencies, both in terms of people not having enough nutrients, but then also in terms of, you know, supporting a more healthy diet where people are potentially getting too many nutrients and suffering from problems such as obesity. And how much of a problem is micronutrient deficiency? Do you have any any stats to tell us how big of a problem it is? I mean, micronutrient deficiency, it, it is a major problem. There's a statistic that over two billion people worldwide suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. Um, and this is what I was talking about before, which is called hidden hunger. But one of the problems is this number, is the number that everyone has been using, but the we lack actually sufficient data to get a really accurate estimate of it. So we know that micronutrient deficiencies is a really, really big problem, but we actually don't have a really good handle of how big a problem it is and where and which micronutrients. So there are still a lot of gaps in this area. I suppose if it's hidden hunger, it is quite difficult to put your finger on it of what precisely is the is the deficiency yeah. and how big a problem is it. Yeah. And the symptoms, I guess, you know, things like stunting um, and anemia that result from not having enough of these micronutrients. Um, there are also other causes. So it's hard really to understand what is specifically caused by the micronutrient deficiency and what's caused by other factors. So I read that you've been involved in a really cool project, essentially kind of trying to figure out what the traits are that predict nutrient content among marine fish. And, and then taking this forward to kind of look at nutrient yields and patterns thereof. Is that right? Um, yeah, so um, it's part of a larger uh, research project that's funded by the European Research Council. But we've also got, you know, other sources and we collaborate quite closely with World Fish on this and other organisations and individuals. And I guess our starting point links back to your earlier question about is a fish just a fish? And I guess the early motivation was to get a real handle of what is known about fish and nutrients, about how they vary across different fish, about how nutritious fish are in general. Um, so we know a lot about some nutrients, but like omega-3s, for example, but other nutrients like vitamin A and vitamin B12, we don't really have a lot of information about that. So what we found was there is a lot of information out there, but it's very patchy, both in terms of geography, in terms of nutrient and in terms of species. But what we thought we could potentially do is use the information that we do have and what we would expect to influence the nutrient content in species. So, for example, you'd expect what a fish eats to affect the nutrients available in the tissue of that fish. You'd expect how warm an environment the fish lives in to affect, for example, levels of omega-3 in that fish. So we collected a range of environmental and ecological traits 
that we would theoretically expect to influence the nutrient quality in that fish and developed a model to then predict the nutrient concentration of the nutrients that we were interested in in different species of fish based on the 400 species of fish that we do have information on. And how did that work out? I do like a good model, to be quite honest. (laughs) Well, it worked, worked out really well. We managed to effectively predict the nutrient content for seven nutrients essential to human health. We combined this model with data that the Sea Around Us project at the University of British Columbia to try and reconstruct fisheries catches based on the FAO data. So we've got this great data set that UBC has been producing that tells us how much fish is being fished out of the water in different countries' EEZs. We have this model that we've produced that draws on ecological and environmental traits from another freely available data source, which is FishBase. And we managed to put all of this together and quantify the nutrient yields in the world's fisheries. Wow, that sounds massive. That's like a really massive step ahead in terms of trying to figure out what we're actually doing with fisheries and how we should best manage them, I suppose. How could small scale fisheries really help with combating some of these nutrient deficiencies that we see out there? I mean, so the study that I just talked about was looking at global fisheries. So it was small scale and commercial. But one of the key things that we found was that in many of the geographies where deficiencies are prevalent in much of Africa, particularly West Africa, but also in parts of Asia and the Caribbean, there are large quantities of nutrients of critical public health concern that are being fished out of the waters. But the populations don't seem to be getting these nutrients. Um, So there's various reasons why that is happening. But this really highlights that actually local solutions to malnutrition do hold a lot of scope. So it's really important, actually, to ensure that small scale fisheries are sustainable and that local coastal populations have access to the nutritious fish that is being caught by these fisheries. I think fisheries are often thought of as important source of income because fish is a fairly valuable commodity. Mm. But I guess some of our thinking is trying to ask whether sources of income or profit can be thought of as secondary to securing nutrition. So it's not that large quantities of fish need to be eaten by individuals to meet their nutritional needs, particularly these key micronutrients, but ensuring that vulnerable populations, especially young children and pregnant or lactating mothers, are able to access small amounts of fish would be really important for nutritional outcomes. So we're really hoping that this study, which we've just recently had published in Nature, will have wide-reaching policy and practical impact in the areas of nutritional security in fisheries. I really hope so too. It sounds like an amazing study. Well done. Thank you. So, Becca, if there would be right now one thing that you could change about how we, for example, in Europe perceive small-scale fisheries, what would you most like to change? I think there's a narrative at the moment that small-scale fisheries are something that you have to try and develop people out of, that it's some kind of bad occupation that people don't want to be in and that isn't good enough for them when actually they're perfectly adequate for feeding people and potentially better than commercial fisheries. There's a need within Western countries to always increase profits, increase efficiency, increase technology. And there's reasons why this has had negative impacts. And this is because they've become less sustainable. There are fewer jobs from this kind of fishing. There's more inequality, there's more waste, and it feeds fewer people. 
So I would like to change the narrative to looking at what are the things we can learn from small-scale fisheries and what are the benefits that we need to capitalise on more. So I really think that we should be promoting small-scale fisheries instead of seeing them as something that we need to develop. Mm-hmm.